Bill, you're now in your first year of seminary. It's a great honor to be called to this great high ministry. And I know you probably have many questions as to what all is involved in being a preacher. Maybe you have a question you want to ask tonight. Yes, there is. What do you say to the people when you preach? We have but one message, Bill. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. Without that message, we Christian pastors and preachers have no message. You know, Bill, I think many Christians would prefer not to think about the cross when they think about Jesus. They'd prefer to emphasize the good, the warmth, the love, the healing. But without the cross, we have the danger that Jesus could just be a personality cult. The cross is all central to our faith. But how do you do that? You lift up Jesus Christ. And there's probably no better time in all of the world than on Good Friday. You see, Bill, you must tell the people about sin. How sin came into the world by one man in a garden who ate of the fruit of a tree. And when you understand the basis of sin, then you have the opportunity to tell them about the one who died on a tree, Jesus Christ, on Golgotha Hill. Jack and I don't have all the answers, but if you would sit here tonight with all of your friends, maybe we can help you and all of us to understand a little bit better what happened on the cross of Golgotha Hill. So sit down with us, Bill, and come warm with us in the water.
Bill, you know that our God, the great Yahweh, as he was called in the Old Testament, brought our world into being. He created it. And he placed mankind in it. And mankind was given dominion over all the earth. But at the same time, we were given the gift of free will. The choice belonged to mankind as to how they would respond to, to Yahweh or God. They could live forever in a loving obedience to him, or they could rebel and they could disobey his commandments. And they could try to take for themselves the glory that belonged only to him. As you well know, our ancestors way back there failed the test. Their act of disobedience brought sin into the world which God had created. The consequence of sin was death. Death in the physical sense of an end to life and death in the eternal sense of being apart from God forever. Mankind started its long journey down the centuries with a sense of sadness and fear and guilt. How can we deal with this burden? We know that we should become reconciled to God, but how? There were several ways that the men of old found to deal with the problem. In early Israel, there was a tradition of sacrifice. The patriarchs and Moses set down laws that explained and regulated the practice of sacrifice. Sin, they thought, caused an individual to lose his life. Didn't matter whether he was losing his earthly life or his eternal life. But this life could only be restored, they felt, by forfeiting another life. And the ancient people believed that life was contained in the blood of both human beings and animals. So they reasoned that by sacrificing or by spilling the blood of an animal, they were somehow repaying God for the sins that they had committed and thereby gaining their own lives back. In order to reestablish a sense of, of perfection, a sense of cleanness, a sense of freedom from sin, the animal that they offered for sacrifice needed to be perfect. It had to be the firstborn, the firstborn male offspring of its mother. And it had to have no blemishes or flaws. Of course, it meant that that animal was probably of some great value, but that was a small price to pay for the forgiveness of sins. The victim was chosen, and it was brought by its owner, led to the place designated by the priests for sacrifice. Usually that was a stone altar out in the wilderness, but after the building of the temple in Jerusalem, that, that became the only location where the ritual could be performed. The person who wanted to make the sacrifice handed it over to the priest, who then actually did the killing. Blood was deliberately spilled on the altar, and it was placed on the hands of the person making the offer of the animal in order to identify him with it. When we came to the time of the Exodus, when the people of Israel left Egypt, a very specialized time of sacrifice was begun. It was called the Passover. 
It commemorated that night when the angel of death was to come and to kill the firstborn sons of all the families of Egypt. The people of Israel were told to, to gather in their family units and to kill, to have killed on the altar a firstborn lamb and place the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. The lamb was then cooked whole and eaten by the family in preparation for their long journey in the wilderness. But that lamb was not to be divided with other families. It wasn't to be broken up. No bones of the lamb were to be broken. And those houses that strictly kept those rules were passed over by the angel of death. In that way, the, the blood of that firstborn lamb, he whose bones were unbroken, saved the people of Israel from death and allowed them to be freed from bondage. And as we know, the annual Passover meal reenacts those events to remind Israel of the mighty act of God that released her from captivity in Egypt. As they moved through the wilderness in toward the promised land, the events of the Exodus brought another hope of salvation to the people of Israel. But oddly enough, it, this concept began as a way out of financial difficulties. As a result of having been released from slavery to Egypt, the people retained a strong sympathy toward anyone who was a slave. And it was not unlawful to own a slave in the Hebrew nation. Often individuals who had heavy debts that they couldn't pay were allowed to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debt that they owed. And because the Exodus brought the people into their own homeland, ownership of land became a very important thing to them. And once in a while, land that had been handed down through generations in the same family and which should have remained in that family was sometimes sold to pay off a debt. Now, these two instances brought into prominence a little-known dream of early Israel, a dream that was called the Redeemer. And to go back a bit, we all know that the seventh day of the week in early times was the Sabbath, a day of rest. But under the law of Moses, the seventh year in a cycle was also a Sabbath year. In fact, nowadays we get our term sabbatical year from that. And during this year, it was decreed that debts would be canceled, slaves would be freed, and land that had been sold off away from its original families would be returned to the rightful owners. But the trouble is, the people who had bought those slaves or bought that land had to somehow be repaid. The land had to be redeemed. So the custom grew up that usually a wealthy or a successful member of the family was felt to be duty-bound to use his wealth and his power to see to it that the family obligations were settled during that Sabbath year. If a relative had sold himself into slavery, it was the duty of this well-to-do individual to pay the debt, to ransom that person, to redeem him from slavery. If a parcel of land belonging to the family had been sold, that wealthy individual was supposed to go to the buyers and redeem it from them, to pay it off. And this was a very good person that had to do these things, a very exalted person. And the one who went around paying off the debts, these ransoms for their less fortunate relatives, became known as a redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel, 
And this man's solemn obligation was to, to save his family from humiliation and from bondage and from ruin. At sometimes at great cost to himself. And there was no personal reward. He didn't get to keep the land. He had to turn it back over to his relatives. So as the generations went by in Israel, this concept of the man known as the Redeemer grew in scope. The little nation began to go into a decline and it no longer represented a powerful force in the Middle East. Other nations defeated her and enslaved the citizens. And the prophets rose up in those times and they began to cry out, who will redeem Israel? Someone was needed who would pay the ransom, restore the fortunes of this once proud but now poor nation. Israel herself needed a redeemer, a goel. But of course her problems did not involve money. Her bondage was a result of the sins of the people. And the redeemer who was going to save her from sin would have to pay a very, very heavy price. Israel had one more yet traditional way of dealing with the burden of her guilt. During the difficult times of the wandering in the wilderness, Moses and his people were often overwhelmed by the, the sense of the sins of the nation itself, not the individual sins of the people, but the corporate sins of the nation. So the Day of Atonement was begun. We still know of the Day of Atonement. We still know of the Hebrew word, Yom Kippur. This day was set aside for prayer and fasting, and all the people took part by reflecting on their sins and asking God to forgive them. But the most important happening on that day was when the chief priest selected by lot a goat, and this goat was to bear the collective sins of all the people. Of course, we know that that's come to be known as a scapegoat. And this animal was brought to the altar and the, the priest laid his hands on its head and confessed the nation's guilt and asked that all of the sin be placed right there on the head of the goat. When this was finished, the goat was driven through the encampment and away from the encampment, out into the wilderness. And later, when there was a city, they drove it through the streets of the city and out, out, of, out of the gates outside. And the people prayed that as the animal went out, their sins would go out with him. So in a symbolic manner that had great meaning for these people, the goat who had done no wrong was made to go out alone from the place of habitation, bearing the sins of all the people. So in the tradition of the people of ancient Israel, three basic themes became intertwined for dealing with sins. Three ways that a helpless human race could escape the consequence of those sins that they could not avoid committing. A sinner could exchange the blood of an innocent sacrifice for his own life. A sinner could be redeemed by being ransomed at a very high price through a, a relative much more worthy than he. Or sinners could symbolically place their sinful acts on the head of an innocent one and drive it away from the camp and the sins would die with him. Is it possible? Is it possible that all three of these traditions could ever come together in one act of atonement 
performed by one man. The question was asked over and over again by the people of Israel as they yearned for release from the bondage that resulted from their sin. They'll never forget and memorize well what happened on the day of the cross. We believe it was sometime after midnight that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was immediately taken to the house of the chief priests. 
Caiaphas. And there all through the night, the members of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, the ecclesiastical group, tried to find ways to make accusation against Jesus. And it was Caiaphas himself who said, by counseling the people, it is expedient that one should die for all. During the early hours of that Friday morning, they finally decided that they could accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And then about six o'clock in the morning or around daybreak, they left the house of the chief priests and they went to the praetorium, the place where Pontius Pilate lived and worked. At this time, Jerusalem, all of Palestine, was under the control of Rome. And only Rome could say who would die. So the Jews knew that they had to get the Romans to put Jesus to death. So they brought our Lord under Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate was having trouble with the Jews. He couldn't quite understand them. They couldn't understand him. He, he walked a very tight rope. At first, he didn't want anything to do with this. He could see it was an ecclesiastical matter. You handle it according to your own laws, he told the Jews. But they said, oh no, we want this man put to death. Pilate listened to Jesus. He tried to interrogate him. He could find no wrong. The man was innocent. And he went and told the Jews this, but the Jews would not be satisfied. They said, we want him crucified. What was poor Pilate to do? In interrogating Jesus further, he found that he was a Galilean. Aha! That means he was from the northern providence, and that providence was under the leadership and rule of Herod Antipas. And it just happened that Herod Antipas was in Jerusalem for the high holidays. He would send Jesus to him and allow him to make the decision. So Jesus was taken to Herod's temporary quarters in Jerusalem. But Herod only wanted to see Jesus commit a miracle, and Jesus did nothing, said nothing. And Herod was disappointed. He mocked Jesus, but that's all he did. He just sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate realized he would have to make the decision. And then he remembered an ancient custom, a custom where the Roman procurator would pardon, release one of the persons whom the people would choose who was in bondage at that time. And Pilate was very clever and he knew down there in the jail cell he had a notorious criminal, had the same name as our Lord Jesus, but this man's name was Jesus Barabbas and he was a horrible individual. He'd done terrible things. And Pilate thought, I'll give the people the choice, Barabbas or the Christ. So he went out and said, whom shall I release unto you, Jesus called Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? And he was shocked and surprised when the people responded that they wanted the death of the innocent man. They wanted to crucify Jesus, 
the Christ. Again, he went back and he talked with Jesus and he could find no wrong in this man. He found him innocent of everything. He went back and asked the people, you know, just suppose I beat him, whip him, give him a good tongue lashing. Isn't that enough? We will set him free. Crucify him. Crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he could not get out of the situation without peril to his own life, he called for a basin of water. And before all of the people, he began to wash his hands. And he said as he did so, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And the people all responded with one great chorus, His blood be on us and on our children. And Pilate delivered, handed over to the Jews, Jesus Christ to be crucified. And after he was beaten, as all condemned criminals were in those days, and the soldiers had a gay time, they stripped him of his clothes, put on a purple cloak, crowned him with a thorn crown, gave him a small reed to act as his staff, and they made fun of him, spat in his face, mocked him, ridiculed him, and beat him with whips, the end of which were little pieces of metal or little pieces of broken bone that were made to cut the skin. And then they dressed him again in his own clothes. They made him take up his own weapon of death, the cross. And he had to carry it in a parade, surrounded by soldiers. One carried a sign at the head of the parade which said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was the crime of which he was supposedly guilty, this innocent Jesus. And there he was led through the streets down the Via Dolorosa. There he was looked upon as a common animal. He was led as a lamb is led to slaughter. And in all of his innocency, he said nothing. He did nothing but bear his own cross. But because of the whipping, because he had not seen sleep for many, many hours, two days now, he couldn't stand that strain and he fell. And they constricted an individual who was standing on the sidewalk watching all of this go by, a, a Jew from North Africa, from the town of Cyrene. And they asked that man to pick up the cross and they ordered him to carry it. And throughout all the streets, out through the gate, outside the city, they traveled to the place of the skull, which was a hilltop which from a distance looked like a skull. And on the ground there were skulls scattered all over. The name of that place in Hebrew, Golgotha Hill. 
there after they stripped Jesus of his clothes save only a loincloth. The four soldiers wrestled him down to the ground. They nailed big piercing nails through his wrists. And then they lifted the cross and it thudded down into the ground. The people were jeering. The people were mocking. The people were calling out all sorts of insults. The soldiers were gabbling for the one lone valuable piece of property that he had, a robe that was without seam. And throughout all of this there, Jesus was hanged. And the first words that he uttered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After a while, one of his crossmates, there were three of them that died that day on Golgotha Hill, but one of them said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus said, Truly I say unto you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus from the cross, still filled with nothing but love, looked out upon the crowd that was mocking him and humiliating him, and he saw two who were not, his own mother, and the friend whom he loved. And he said to the friend, Woman, behold thy son. He said that to his mother. And he said to the man, Behold thy mother. And then there was a long, long, long period of silence from the cross. And then with a loud, mighty shout, as loudly as a human being can yell. He shouted, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated in our language is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then in words that were hardly audible, he said, I thirst. And immediately a centurion took a sponge, dipped it into some moist material, put it on the end of a hyssop pole and, and reached up and gave some relief to the quenched lips of Jesus. And then the next thing he said, he did so with a loud, affirming shout, It is finished! And then he bowed his head and reciting an ancient prayer from the Old Testament said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and he died. And at that very moment the earth began to shake. The rocks were split. The great veil which separated the holy of holies from the holy place was torn in twain and Jesus Christ was dead because it was the day before the Sabbath and this was a special Sabbath at the Passover season the Jews said that they could not allow any bodies to remain on the cross so they entreated the soldiers of Pilate to, to make sure the people were dead and they were to do so by breaking the legs of the victims. 
They went to the first cross, and sure enough, one thief was still alive, so they broke his legs to quicken his death. They went to the cross on the other side, and sure enough, he was alive, so they broke his legs to make sure he was, would die soon. And they went to the center cross, but Jesus was already dead, so they broke not a bone of his body, but a centurion standing at his side thrust a spear upward into the side of Jesus and there gushed out water and blood. And that centurion who was not a Jew said truly this man was innocent. Certainly this was the son of God.
Bill, it's difficult sometimes for 20th century Christians to identify with some of the symbolism of the cross. We think of ourselves as realists today. There isn't any mysticism in our thought patterns. We feel that there are no supernatural powers that affect our existence. Our minds, we think, see things the way they are. But there was a different situation in the early part of the first century, A.D. The men who lived in Judea and who held to the, to the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob felt very close to their God. In fact, they felt uncomfortably close. They had a strong sense of being under observation. And they felt that all their sins were well known to their Creator. Everything that they perceived to be the laws of God, they scrupulously observed down to the smallest detail. But keeping the law was a full-time, never-ending task. Most people realized it was practically impossible. So there was a sense of guilt and uneasiness that prevailed all the time among the people of Israel. Anything that their organized religion offered them to give them the feeling that they were lessening the burden of sin and guilt, they would do. They felt that God had seen their transgressions and they wanted him to see their attempts to atone and repent for their sins. This is almost a, a desperate predicament and into this situation came Jesus of Nazareth. Now he established right away that he was a, a very good man. You could see that by his clear and forceful teaching and his preaching. He began to perform healings and miracles and of course everyone recognized that that made him a good man. But then he began to say strange things. Things that hinted that he might be something more than just a great teacher. He said things like, I am the way and the truth and the light. And he said, I and the Father are one. And he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. But the most amazing thing he said, he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, no one can forgive sins but God. And only a sacrifice, only the, the substitution of an animal's life in place of our own can accomplish that. What could he possibly have meant by that? And suddenly, there was the cross. Now, if it seems like a puzzle to us, it certainly did not to the people of that time because the symbolism was too strong. It was more than symbolism. Jesus became in his own person an atonement for the sins of the people. It was too obvious to miss. Now, if we had been the people of Jerusalem, it would have been a daily sight for us to see animals being led through the streets to the temple for sacrifice. Sheep, goats, 
cattle, each one a perfect, unblemished specimen. And for no other reason than the sinfulness of their owners, these creatures would be handed over to the priests who would slaughter them in a ritual fashion and spill their blood on the altar and place some of it on the hands of the owners to identify who brought them. And to us, this is a barbaric and a frightening thing. But if we had lived at that time, it would have been an everyday occurrence. And if we had lived at that time, seeing Jesus tied and being led through the streets of the temple to be handed over to the priests, we would have had very uncomfortable thoughts about what this incident might mean. And if we had taken the time to inquire and learned that he was a great and a good teacher, known far and wide as a person who had never sinned, and that he was the firstborn son of his mother, our uneasiness about what was coming would begin to build up. And if we heard rumors from inside that temple that the chief priest had questioned him and accused him and that Jesus offered no defense in his own behalf, but he simply stood quietly in front of his accusers and said nothing, our thoughts would begin to race to an unbelievable conclusion. And if the reports from inside the temple told us that the priests had had Jesus viciously whipped until he bled profusely and then they pressed a crown of thorns down on his, on his head and dug into his scalp until he bled further. And if we saw the Roman governor wash his hands in public and claim that he was innocent of this, the blood of this man, and if we heard the crowd shout, his blood is on us, there wouldn't be any doubt in our minds at all. A sacrifice is taking place here, an atonement for our sins, only it isn't a goat or a sheep or a calf that's paying the price. It's a man. And if we were further aware of the significance of the Passover feast, which had taken place in thousands of Jewish homes the very night that Jesus had been arrested, we would see some inescapable similarities there, too. Jesus and his disciples had taken part in such a feast. But all the family gatherings in Jerusalem had included unleavened bread and wine and a lamb. A lamb whose blood had been shed on the altar and had been prepared for the supper whole. A lamb, not a bone of which was broken. If we had known that Jesus said to his disciples as he handed them bread, this is my body given for you. And as he poured out the wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We couldn't fail to notice that the essential ingredient of the feast, the Passover lamb, was not present. At least, not in the form of a lamb. The lamb was there, all right. But it wasn't an animal. It was a man. And we could all see, once that sacrifice was complete and the body hung on the cross, that 
as was mentioned, this cruel method that the Romans used to verify the death by breaking the legs of the victims didn't take place because Jesus died quickly. They didn't bother. Not a bone of him was broken. The notion that someday we might be in some sort of bondage or that we might need for someone to come and, and buy back land that had belonged to our family because we had sold it. These are not modern day concepts. But if we had lived then and had spent our money in a carefree fashion and that had gotten us into trouble and we had to sell the family farm and we had to enter into servitude into slavery for a number of years and we were laboring along in poverty and despair and suddenly a relative who had money bought back our farm for us and he paid off our debts and we could live as free men and women instead of as slaves we would know exactly what it means to be redeemed or ransomed and especially if this benefactor didn't owe us a thing he simply got us out of financial trouble because it, he felt that it was his duty to do so we'd have a very good idea of what the Hebrew word goel means what a redeemer is it's someone that takes our obligations our problems our sins upon himself it's someone who gets us off the hook, no matter what the cost is. It's someone who pays the price that we can't afford to pay to get us out of trouble, even if that price is his own life. Now, we're not talking about some mythical figure here, not some spirit somewhere. We're not talking about a comic book superhero. We're talking about a man. Now, the people of Israel had for centuries observed the Day of Atonement. Now, that's a funny concept to us, a peculiar concept. It seems strange to try to relieve ourselves of guilt by declaring that all of our sins rest on the head of a goat and then drive the goat out of the camp or out of the city. But if we had lived then, it would be a very familiar, a very solemn moment. The priest, with prayers and confession, would ask, that the sins of the nation would rest on this poor innocent animal and then he would order that it be driven out of the community and we can imagine that the bewildered goat was herded roughly through the streets amid shouts and curses and perhaps even some weeping and cries of confession to the gates of the city or to the edge of the camp in the earlier days the, the mob would follow the frightened animal and once it left the inhabited area to face a lonely death by starvation, the people would be satisfied and they'd return to their homes secure that their sins were gone forever. Now, if you and I were used to seeing that drama played out year after year, I don't think we could escape the awful feeling that Jesus was a scapegoat as he was being driven through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross while the crowd followed. Some of the mob shouted and cursed and some wept and some cried out to Jesus. 
But anybody who observed that tragedy that took place on that day must have thought, it's a scapegoat being driven out of the city to die with our sins on his head. But it wasn't a goat. It was a man. Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday so long ago as a sacrifice, trading our blood for his sins. He went as a redeemer, paying the ransom for our slavery. And he went as a scapegoat, being driven out from among the race of mankind to his death, bearing our sins on his head. Now, these images may have become dim and indistinct over the centuries because we no longer use them. But if we had been there on that day at Golgotha, the cross and its meaning would be a symbol that we could never forget. You see, Bill, on this night, we see another dimension of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, who came down into this world, King of kings and Lord of lords, entered into us through the sacrament and went out to die as Savior. He did this on the cross. And his hope, his plan, his purpose is with the knowledge that we are forgiven by his sacrifice on the cross.
we should follow him. And as he went out to die on the cross, he expects us to go out into the world bearing a cross. If you would follow me, Jesus said long before the day of the cross, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now you hear a lot of people interpreting that passage by thinking that a cross is something that has been imposed upon them like an illness or an affliction or a deep sorrow or separation. Those things may be tragedies, Bill, but they're not crosses. A cross is not something that is forced upon you, but rather a cross is something that you voluntarily take up. That's what Jesus did when he went out. He didn't have to die upon that cross, but for the love of God and for God's people, he voluntarily allowed himself to become the sacrifice for us. And he expects us, if we understand the cross, to be cross-bearers as well. We don't have to pay for the sin, but we are to live as people who are redeemed from sin. And our job is to go out into the world, to take up our crosses daily, denying ourselves and following him. You do that, Bill. You preach that message. And the promise of him who bore the cross for us is that that person will find life. For whosoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake and who will take up his cross daily and follow me. He, she, will find life, and that life everlasting. So, Bill, as you go into the ministry, as all of us go into life tonight, let us take up our crosses. Father, help me to take up my cross daily and follow you.